0: This morning, we're in Luke chapter 17, giving him thanks, verses 11 through 19. Let's read the passage, and we'll jump into our time here together this morning. It says, on the way to Jerusalem, he, that's referring to Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance, and lifted up their voices, saying, "'Jesus, Master, have mercy on us.' When he saw them, he said to them, "'Go and show yourselves to the priests.' And as, they were, and as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks.'" Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, "'Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner?' And he said to him, "'Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well.'" Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of reading a somewhat familiar passage that we've heard this over the course of our lives and have always been blessed and encouraged to think about how this one Samaritan came back to give thanks. And yet we know in this text there are many things that you would want us to learn and be encouraged by. And so I pray as we dive in this morning that you would be exalted in our hearts and that we would be stirred up as Christians to want to return to you again and again and again and to give thanks. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a medieval legend of two angels sent to earth by the Lord to gather the prayers of the saints. One was to gather, as they were gathering the prayers of the saints, one was to gather the petitions that the saints were making to the Lord, and the other was to gather the thanksgivings that were offered to the Lord. The angel responsible for the petitions was not able to carry them back to heaven in one load. There were so many petitions that had been made, but the angel responsible for carrying back the thanksgivings was able to carry them back in one hand. Lots of petitions, only a few thanksgivings. God forbid that that would be true of you or of me. God forbid that we would do more petitioning in our prayers than we do thanks in our prayers. Why, why can it sometimes be so hard for us to be grateful? Why do we sometimes struggle just to say thank you? What keeps us from truly giving thanks to God and thanking him from the bottom of our hearts? Well, a lack of thankfulness is most often associated with a low view of God and a high view of self, or in other words, a low view of God's holiness and a high view of my own worthiness and what I believe that I deserve because I'm so worthy. And I hate to say it, but one of the biggest problems that we all have and that we rarely want to acknowledge is the problem of Pride. We all think a little bit more of ourselves than we ought, and that's the number one sin keeping us from really being thankful to God. In fact, we think, I deserve better. I don't deserve that, and I don't like that, and I don't want that. Why me, God? We spend a little bit more time complaining and asking than we just spend time thanking And receiving the good and gracious gifts that our God so bountifully bestows upon us. And so to to be thankful always is to recognize God's detailed control in my life. It, It ought to be a humble acceptance that enables me to truly have a grateful heart and to express gratitude to the Lord confidently and willingly and completely trusting in his sovereignty. Amazingly enough, even the world recognizes both the emotional and physiological benefits of actually giving thanks. One researcher gave several reasons why giving thanks could actually be good for you, like in your physiology. Counting your blessings boosts your health, one researcher said. They showed how that grateful people have less depression and stress, lower blood pressure, more energy, and greater optimism. Giving thanks can slow down the aging clock, another researcher showed. In all adults, a daily practice of gratitude slows down some of the effects of neurodegeneration that often occurs as we age. So that researcher is saying, if you just give thanks a lot, you'll look younger. Uh, Another researcher talked about cortisol. It's often discussed as the stress hormone. And when our bodies produce too much, it can deplete the immune system, which raises our blood sugar levels. Research has shown that positive emotions like appreciation significantly lowered the levels of cortisol. Being thankful helps you bond Gratitude simply leads to better relationships. The explanation may be connected to increased production of oxytocin, sometimes called the bonding hormone, because it fosters peace and dependability in relationships. Gratefulness is good for the heart and for the waistline. According to one study, people with high blood pressure who actively express thankfulness can achieve up to a 10% reduction in systolic blood pressure and decrease their dietary fat intake by up to 20%. You know what it's saying? When you're stressed out, you eat a lot of fat food, but when you have a thankful heart, you tend to eat less food because you're not stressed, and that's certainly a potential benefit to be grateful for over this Thanksgiving holiday. All right. Now listen, you guys know my heart. I'm not so interested in physiological research. right? Those are interesting observations and they're out there, but that doesn't really stir me. What stirs me is getting interested in what the Bible has to say about giving thanks. And probably the most popular verse about gratitude in the New Testament arguably would be 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, which says... Give thanks in all circumstances. And I love that reminder. We're to give thanks on the good days and on the bad days. That We give thanks to God in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's God's will this morning that you give thanks. That's God's will for you. In fact, this is a command. It's not a suggestion, it's a command that, that we give thanks. It's in the imperative, give thanks in all situations. This verse does not say, give thanks when you feel like it. Or if someone has done something especially nice for you, like bring you your favorite cup of coffee on a rainy day. Of course we could do that, but it, this verse says, give thanks in all circumstances. It is God's will In Christ Jesus, that you be thankful in all circumstances, the good and the bad. Will it bring about better health, being thankful? I guess so. Will it make others like you more? Probably so. But the real reason that we're called to be grateful in the scripture is not primarily about your health or your social status, but in order for you to bring glory to God. God's glory is placed on display when you and I are more thankful than we are complaining. God's glory is more evident for others to see when you're grateful, more so than when you're griping. And God's glory is more evident in your life when you acknowledge that he is the giver of life and that he is the giver of all blessings and that he even gives us trials in order to make us stronger. And so I trust that this week you'll be doing a lot of thanksgiving. We had our Thanksgiving service last Sunday night. I know that you'll be sitting around the table this turkey day, and you'll be giving thanks. And I hope that you'll be thinking a little bit about this message that you're learning, I'm learning, we're all learning to give thanks in all circumstances. And I trust that we'll be doing that in all situations, and I trust that you'll be reminded to be giving God thanks at all times. Times. And so this morning, as we look at this impactful occasion of Jesus healing 10 lepers and only one of them came back to give thanks, I've outlined this text for you and I want to point out four major headings. Number one, we're going to look at the need was apparent. Number two, the healer was competent. Number three, the change was evident. And then number four, the lesson is magnificent. Let's start with number one this morning. The need was apparent, verses 11 through 13. Your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, is Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So the setting of Jesus healing the 10 lepers happens while Jesus was en route on his way back to Jerusalem. Jesus was actually preparing to travel to the holy city for his very last time. This was Jesus setting his face like a flint, as Isaiah 50 verse seven says. This means that Jesus was determined to fulfill his mission at the cross. This is why he's going back to Jerusalem for this last occasion. It's just a reminder that Jesus came to die, that Jesus came to offer his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, and nothing would stop Jesus from his mission, and yet at the same time, he took the time to minister to people along the way. So he's heading to Jerusalem, he's on a mission, he's got a purpose, and yet here are 10 lepers that Jesus is going to stop and interact with because he wasn't in such a rush that he ignored the needs of people. He always was sensitive to what was going on around him even though he had a divine mission. After raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11, Jesus left the outskirts of Jerusalem and according to John 11:54, 54, he went to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim and he stayed there with his disciples. And this town was located, the town that we're looking at here, somewhere between Galilee and Samaria, was somewhere in that same passage if you compare this Luke account with the account in John being somewhere in that area is where he was and that's exactly where this miracle Takes place. And this brings us up to verse 12. Verse 12, your next blank. Jesus was met by 10 lepers. He was met by 10 lepers. And as he entered a village, we described already where it was, he, met, he was met by the 10 lepers who stood at a distance. These guys kept their distance. And so when Jesus entered the village, he was, he was met by these 10 guys. They all stood a fair a ways away. And because they were in a diseased condition, And they could not come near like the leper earlier in Luke chapter 5 actually came near and Jesus touched him. If you glance back at Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, it says, and while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Luke 5, 13, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Well, that's how that story went. But later, here in Luke chapter uh, 17, Jesus doesn't touch him. The leper's not brought into his presence, and part of the reason for that would be that they weren't supposed to They weren't supposed to be in town where you could reach out and touch them. They were supposed to keep their distance according to Leviticus chapter 13, one of the clear civil laws of of how social constructs were to be, particularly if someone had leprosy. Leviticus 13, 45 through 46 says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean unclean, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So in Leviticus 13, 45 through 46, we see what the Mosaic law had instructed about these lepers, and it's difficult to conceive of any condition more thoroughly miserable than that of people having been afflicted with leprosy. I mean, they were cast out of society. They were cut off from all communication with their friends. There's no cell phones or text messaging or way to get in contact other than face-to-face, and they were going to be outside of the city living in some leprous commune, and they would be without their friends and their family. They were, they were treated as the scum of the earth. Numbers chapter 5, verses 2-3 three, three says, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp Everyone who is leprous, you shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. One commentary says, quote, lepers were uh, strictly forbidden to come near other people or to go interact with anyone except other lepers. So great was the fear of the contagion that lepers were barred from Jerusalem or any other walled city." They were forbidden to come within six feet of a healthy person. They were forbidden to come within 150 feet if the wind was blowing from the direction of the leper. So they are definitely treated with malcontempt, right? Leprosy was a horrible disease in the ancient world. Today, we've renamed leprosy, some have in the medical world, as Hansen's disease, Hansen was the name of the scientist who finally got to the true understanding of leprosy back in the late 1800s. You probably heard that leprosy is an infection caused by a slow-growing bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae. It's the name of the bacteria that can be identified. It can affect the nerves, which is usually what the biggest part of leprosy was. They would be numb and then they would stick their hands maybe in the fire or a sharp object, it would get infected and that bacteria would grow and gangrene at times would set in and they would have to you know lose parts of their face and parts of their, of their bodies. It's a, a disgusting horror that uh, these lepers faced. And so that bacteria would grow, it would affect the nerves, it would affect the skin, it would affect the eyes and the lining of the mucous membrane in the nose. And with early diagnosis and treatment, In the modern world, the disease can be cured with antibiotics. And if left untreated, though, the nerve damage can result in the crippling of the hands and the feet, as well as paralysis and even blindness. In the ancient world, as well as in poverty-stricken areas of Africa and Asia, even today, leprosy causes discoloration and lumps on the skin. In severe cases, leprosy causes disfigurement and deformities of the grossest kinds. In the Bible de- days, lepers were isolated, not only due to the fears of infection, but also because they were ceremonially unclean. In rabbinic teaching, leprosy was second only to contact with dead bodies in terms of defilement. So not merely an actual contact with the leper, but even his entrance defiled a habitation and everything in it. If he even stuck his head into a room, that room would be declared as unclean. These lepers were living a miserable existence. And this was a group that had to deal with isolation and loneliness, and rejection, and survival was difficult since there was no access to the marketplace, and they couldn't effectively work with their hands, and this led most lepers to becoming beggars and outcasts as long as they lived, and what are these lepers to do? Well, there's no cure, there's no help, there's no hope, there's only the deterioration of their bodies and the dwindling of their existence until death ensued. But we are aware that we are never without hope when Jesus is near. Amen? We are never without hope when Jesus is near. And so in verse 13, we see what happens next. Your next blank says Jesus was asked for mercy. Jesus is asked for mercy. These these men um, lifted their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You can almost hear the desperation of their cry. They know that without this man and without this intervention of some type of miraculous occurrence, they're going to be doomed for the rest of their life. And so desperate, as you might imagine, these 10 lepers lifted up their voices in unison together saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. The word master that's used here only appears in this particular story in Luke's gospel. Every time the word master is used in the New Testament in other places, it always refers to Jesus. In Luke chapter five, it is used to show Christ's power over creation and it's used by the disciples. In Luke chapter 8, verse 24, this word master is used to show that Christ has the power to calm the storm. I I said that it was only used here. It was only used here by someone other than the disciples. The disciples used that word master to refer to Jesus calming uh, the storm. In Luke chapter 8, verse 24, they say, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. In Luke chapter 9, verse 33, the word master was used to point to Christ's divinity on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember, it was Peter, James, and John who were there on the Mount, and they said, Peter said, Master, it is good for us that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So when these lepers used the word master, this is a significant usage of the same word that the disciples used to point to the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows that these 10 lepers had a awareness and an acknowledgement of Jesus's divine character and his power. Again, it's the only place where the word is used by someone other than Christ's disciples, showing that they had the same knowledge that Christ's disciples should have had about who Jesus was. The word master, again, describes someone who possesses notable, authority, authority or power the word literally means chief commander and they know that Jesus is totally in command of even disease and death even a disease as horrible as leprosy and the fact that the lepers used this word again shows that they probably even knew of the fact that Jesus had healed others of this same disease They knew he was the master, the Lord over all. And so they're desperately calling out, hoping to bear witness to Jesus's power in their own bodies where they could be healed from leprosy. And so their plea was, have mercy on us. It's a common expression used by people who ask Jesus to have pity and compassion in order to help them. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. The request, have mercy. Again, we see it in Matthew 17, verse 15. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and into the water." Mark chapter 10, verses 47 and 48, talks about our friend, blind Bartimaeus. And in Mark 10, 47, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David. What did he say next? Have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is what Blind Bartimaeus was crying out. He was actually rebuked by those standing beside him, but he cried out all the louder. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. The request is, I need your mercy. I'm at the very bottom of the rope. I'm at the end of the line, and without your mercy intervening, then it's just going to all go in the wrong direction. And so, the leper's disease is incurable. Their situation is bleak. Their need is abundantly apparent. They needed intervention. They needed help. They they needed the mercy of Jesus, who is their master and who is sovereign over sickness and the king over creation. They need his help, and they need it on this day, at this moment. And so they're pleading for the mercy of the Lord Jesus, who is the great physician, and he's a miracle worker. And they want his help, and they're not afraid to ask for it. This brings us to our second heading this morning, the healer was competent. The healer was competent. Verse 14, your next blank, Jesus healed without a word. He heals them without a word. I love this. Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Unlike the leper that Jesus healed back in Luke 5, that I told you earlier, he reached out and touched him. Jesus never touched these 10 lepers. Jesus wasn't afraid to touch a leper. He just did it in Luke 5. And that's what we already read about. But this time he saw and he heard from the 10 and he did not immediately heal them, but he said, go, show yourselves to the priest. And so some wonder why he didn't just touch them or why he didn't just say be healed in that moment. And I believe that part of what was going on here is that Jesus wanted to test their faith. But I also believe that Jesus was revealing more and more of his power. He didn't have to touch someone for them to be healed. He didn't have to say be healed in order for them to be healed. Jesus could heal without a touch, and Jesus could heal without a word, and Jesus could heal without even being there. Jesus could heal in any way that he wanted to heal. There was no methodology to his healing, and there's no methodology to healing today. It's a miracle that God does in his way and his time, and it doesn't matter who you are. Or what gifts you have, if God wants to heal somebody, it's God's prerogative to heal when he wants, how he wants, and to to the degree that he would want to. And so, in part, this reminds us maybe even of that centurion in Capernaum who made Jesus aware of his paralyzed servant who was suffering at home, and Jesus offered to come, but then that centurion says, Hey, you don't have to come. Remember Matthew chapter 8? Verses 8 through 10, the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he doesn't. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. In that example, the centurion just said, Jesus, you just say the word. These ten lepers didn't even necessarily have to hear the word be healed, but they just pleaded for the mercy that God would give. Jesus had healed that centurion's servant by the way in Matthew 8:13, and to the centurion Jesus said, "Go, let it be done for you as you have believed," and at that very moment the servant was healed. And so again, Jesus didn't have to be on the spot Jesus didn't have to say a certain word. There's no abracadabra, a certain statement that you say, and somehow you'll be healed, right? That's just not the way Jesus is. It's just simply sowing Jesus's sovereign power over disease. And at the same time, he does say here in verse 14, what does he say? He says, go and show yourselves to the priests. And this leads us to our next point. Your next blank says that Jesus followed the civil law. He follows the civil law. The Old Testament had a civil law about leprosy. We already examined in Leviticus 13 and Numbers 5, which both address the uncleanliness of the condition. But what we haven't looked at yet in the Old Testament laws, the fact that if someone was to be cleansed of leprosy, they were to go and show themselves to the priest. And Leviticus 14 gives us this stipulation. Leviticus 14 verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. Then if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, then it talks about how he's going to pronounce his cleansing and allow him to be brought back into the camp. The point is that a person who's healed of leprosy is supposed to go to the priest to be affirmed of his cleansing. The passage uh, discusses that clearly there in Leviticus chapter 14. Now, do you know how many times a person was healed of leprosy and went to the priest in the Old Testament and the priest had the privilege of declaring that person is now clean and has now been cleansed of their leprosy. Do you know how many times that happened in the Old Testament? How many times? Zero. Not once in the Old Testament was there a clear occurrence of this exact thing happening in this same way. I'm not saying no one was ever cleansed of leprosy in the Old Testament because if we were to go back and do a quick review of leprosy as it shows up throughout the Bible, we understand that it was cured as a miracle on more than one occasion. The first time was in Numbers chapter 12 where you have Miriam who is the sister of Moses and she was struck with leprosy because she was jealous of the fact that God spoke directly to Moses and, and had chosen Moses as his primary leader and Moses at that time Prayed for Miriam because God struck her with leprosy and she was healed, but she didn't go to the priest. We also see in Second Chronicles 26:19, King Uzziah was judged with leprosy because of his pride. He tried to play the role of both uh, both king and priest and showed the incense there in the temple. So he was struck with leprosy and he died from the disease. And we, the only other clear Old Testament example was Naaman who was healed of leprosy when he washed in the Jordan. And after he washed in the Jordan River, he was, uh, you know, cleansed from his leprosy, but he never went to the priest to be declared to be clean. He headed back to Samaria, where he was from, after that happened. My point is this, to be healed of leprosy was a miracle because there was no cure And to be healed of leprosy was also an announcement that the Messiah had come because Jesus would heal lepers with his miracle working power. And so the idea of go show yourself to the priest was also to be an announcement of the fact that if this person is healed, something divine's happening and what happening might just be that the Messiah is now here. And we see that, that concept used when John the Baptist was in prison and he sent his disciples to Jesus, he's a little discouraged, He's in prison, sent his disciples to Jesus to say, "Was he the one to come, or shall they look to another?" And do you remember what Jesus' response was to John the Baptist disciples who wanted to come say, "Hey, are you the guy?" In Luke 7:22, he answered them. Jesus did, and he said, "Go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard." the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus is saying to John the Baptist's disciples, yes, I'm the one. Are you the one, or should we seek it out? I'm the one. I'm fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah about a miraculous miracle worker who would cleanse the lepers, And so that's exactly what Jesus is saying is I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one, I am the one who has come, you need not look to another. And so when Jesus told these 10 lepers, back to Luke chapter 17, to go to the priest, he was not only obeying the civil law, he was also fulfilling the law. Not only was he following the old covenant, he was also pointing to the new covenant. The fact that Christ was here, the fact that the social law of the old covenant was intended so to point to Christ. And so when the priests would have verified the 10 lepers were indeed healed, they would be professing in a way that the Messiah had arrived. This miracle was yet another announcement of the arrival of the Messiah. And yet at the same time, While all this is going on, I still believe, see there in your outline, that Jesus is in a sense testing their faith. He's also in a sense testing their faith. Well, where do you get that from? Well, the very end of verse 14, it says, and as they went, they were cleansed. Jesus told them to go and it was as they went. No doubt in part, Jesus is testing their faith. He's testing their faith in his own ability to heal them without a word and without a touch. And by obeying, these men would be demonstrating their faith in Christ while fulfilling the requirements of the law. And the priests, in return, would receive the 10 ex-lepers, and they would function as the local health inspectors. And according to Leviticus 14, they would be this elaborate process lasting for eight days that would involve various examinations and sacrifices and rituals in order to determine whether a person was indeed free from leprosy. Again, certainly, there is a reminder here of maybe even Jesus turning water into wine at Cana. Jesus told the servants to fill the jars with water and to take them to the master of the ceremony. And the text says that as they obeyed, that the water was turned into wine. Or we also have briefly discussed Naaman, how he was the Samaritan who was healed from leprosy, when he came to be healed by Elisha maybe you remember it was in 2nd kings chapter 5 verse 10 that Elisha instructed him go and wash in the Jordan 7 times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean Naaman was reluctant at first, but then he obeyed, in verse 14 of Second Kings five says, "So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean." I'm saying that at the end of Luke 17, verse 14, when it says, "And as they went, they were cleansed, there's still something tied here to their obedience. They have faith, absolutely. But their faith is also tied to their action. It's a faith that transforms. It's a, tr- a faith that obeys, right? It's a faith that puts some feet to it in the sense of it, the demonstration of their faith is in the fact that they're gonna do exactly what it was that Jesus said to do. And it's as they did what Jesus called them to do, it, that's when they were healed. Now I love J.C. Ryle. He's got wonderful commentary for the four gospels. And on this account, J.C. Ryle says, this is how help works meets men in the path of obedience. We are told that when the lepers cried out to the Lord, he only replied, go show yourselves to the priest. He did not touch them and command their disease to depart. He prescribed no medicine, no washing, no use of outward material means. Ryle says that help and power accompanied the words which he spoke. Relief met the afflicted company as soon as they obeyed. His command, and then Ryle says, "This a fact like this is doubtless intended to teach us knowledge. It shows us the wisdom of simple, childlike obedience to every word which comes out of the mouth of Christ. It does not become us to stand still, and to reason and doubt when our Master commands. When our Master's commands are plain and unmistakable, if the lepers had acted in this way." They would have never have been healed. We must read the scriptures diligently. We must try to pray. We must attend on the public means of grace. All these are duties which Christ requires at our hands and to which if we love life, we must attend without asking vain questions. It is just the path of unhesitating obedience that Christ will meet and bless us. Do you get that? It's all faith. But it's a faith that works. and It's a faith that obeys. It's a faith that puts some feet to that belief. And as we do that, that's where Christ meets us and blesses us. And so we've seen so far that the need is apparent. These guys have leprosy, and they're not going to be healed without Christ's intervention. We've seen that the healer is extremely competent. He can just say the word or tell them to go or follow a social command of the Old Testament. And as they did that, they would be healed. He's got a lot of power. And in third, in our outline this morning, number three, the change was evident. The change was evident. A, Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus makes all the difference. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Now, note how many ways these ten men were alike. We're talking about the ten lepers. Many ways that they were alike. They were all afflicted with this dreadful disease. They were all determined to do something about it. They had all heard about Jesus and believed that he could help them. They all acknowledged that Jesus was master and appealed to him for mercy. They all obeyed and and headed towards the priest on that very day. And, and, And in that moment, they were healed. But at this point, the similarity ends. Luke must have been strategic to record that not all 10 men were like the unworthy servant of the immediately preceding parable who did only what he had been commanded to do. It must have grieved Luke to report that there was only one who came back to give thanks. The previous parable, Should you just do your duty, or should we as Christians go beyond our duty? These ten went to the priest, but this one came back. And while the ten had started on their way to the priest, fully healed and restored in every tissue in their bodies, only one came back. They were all cured, and they all knew that this would lead to a new life, restored relationships, a second chance at happiness. But suddenly, one of the ten, and only one, turned around and walked back to Jesus. And this, this verse gives us the impression that the 10 had not walked very far away from their healer before this one man turned back. Almost like they're going to the priest and they start to feel the regeneration of their skin and their bones and their nerves. And they're like, oh man, it's happening. And the rest of the nine continue towards the priest. And this one guy says, man, I'm going back. Jesus had made all the difference to him. The priests could wait. His family could wait. His future could wait. But he wanted to take this invaluable moment to give thanks. And sometimes it just takes a moment, right? Sometimes it only takes one sentence. Sometimes the expression of gratitude can lead to so much more. But are we willing, the obvious application is, are we willing to be that one that would just say, I just wanted to say thank you. I just want to say thank you for all you've done first to the Lord and then to those around us who make a difference in our life. Are we willing to just go a little bit further and say, you know what, I want to express my gratitude. And so this man came back here, and we see your next blank, B, Jesus is to be praised, worshipped, and thanked. He's to be praised, worshipped, and to be thanked. We see this one man, when he saw he was healed, he turned back, middle of verse 15, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And so this healed leper came back, and he was praising God. I love how it says with a what? With a loud voice. This gives an idea, obviously, of strong emotion, The words loud voice are used in the same way to express great emotion at the triumphal entry in Luke 19, 37 and 38. It talks about how the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. That's the loud voice is how it's used in other places there in Luke. And so I believe that this leper that was healed uses a loud voice because he has just discovered with greater conviction that Jesus indeed is the blessed king who has come in the name of the Lord. And not only does he use a loud voice, but he also, the text says, that he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. This is paying homage to Jesus as the true king. This is worshiping Jesus as the Lord of all. This was a clear affirmation that Jesus is the divine son of God since only God is to be worshipped and to be adored. I mean that's that's all the way back from Exodus 20 verse 3. The first commandment, which says, you shall serve no other gods before me. Only one God's to be worshipped. Only one God's to be adored, and that's the God of heaven. And so the fact that this man is worshipping Jesus is another sign of his understanding of the divinity of Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven or on earth, above or below, that is in the water. Or under the earth, you shall not bow to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So we know that from the scriptures, that this man is to only worship the true living God. And so this man is praising God in the form of Jesus Christ with a loud voice, and he's worshiping at Jesus' feet, and he's giving him thanks. The other nine no doubt, intended to worship God, maybe in the temple to one degree or another, or they, they, they wanted to, to worship, We're giving them the benefit of the doubt in some way, but this man wanted to worship God right now. He wanted to give thanks and praise right now in this moment in the, in, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. This man didn't go to the temple for rituals and symbols when he had the glory of God right in front of him. This man recognized the manifestation of divine power and grace and healing that he had just received, and he wanted to worship God in the person of Christ, who alone is the true temple, the one whom Colossians 2.9 says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. What I'm trying to say to you is this, that this was the clear recognition of, of Christ as God and the clear realization that his healing had come from the hands of God's own son. And this is part of what made this man so grateful. So many of the Psalms include the idea of gratefulness and thanksgiving together with praise, which is what this man is doing. He's, he's worshiping, he's praising, and he's giving thanks. We praise and worship or praise and give thanks. Praise and thanksgiving go hand in hand uh, all over the psalm. Psalm 30, verses 11 through uh, 12 says, "'You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. "'You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness "'that I may sing of your praise and not be silent. "'O Lord, I will give thanks to you forever.'" Praise, thanksgiving, they go hand in hand. Psalm 69, verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Praise and thanksgiving, they go together. Psalm 100, verse four, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Praise and thanksgiving, they go together. And you would have expected all 10 men to run to Jesus and to thank him for a new start in life, but only one did. How grateful the men should have been for the providence of God that brought Jesus into their area. How grateful they should have been for the love that caused him to pay attention to their need. How grateful they should have been for the grace and power of God that brought about this healing. And I hope that we'll not miss that same opportunity in our lives to give thanks to God for saving our souls. For giving you life, for giving you a place to live and clothes on your back and giving you a family and people who love you and for giving you a second chance in life and forgiving you of all of your sin and for loving you when you were unlovely. That's what our God does. And yet we just kinda stroll through this week and think it's all about a big turkey day and a bunch of football and a lot of family. And I love all that stuff. <laughs> but not like I love Jesus. The thankfulness of our hearts and the bestowing of the blessings that he's given us ought to be realized and recognized and related throughout our lives, but especially on a week like this. And the change that took place in this man was actually more than just outer healing and physical blessing from a debilitating disease. Jesus also changed this man in his heart, from depravity to dependence on him. I believe that it's evident in these verses 15 and 16 that this man has now been converted. This man has been regenerated. This man has become born again. He has new skin, but he also has a new heart. He has a new lease on life as a recipient of eternal life. I think we'll see that not only the fact that he's praising him loudly and worshiping him, but in verse 19, Jesus said, it is your faith that made you well. And we'll look at that in just a moment in verse 19. But I'm saying, I believe this guy has now got new faith. Why? Because Jesus makes all the difference. Jesus is to be thanked. And your next blank says, Jesus shows no partiality. Jesus shows no partiality because the very end of verse 16 says, Now he was a Samaritan. If you know anything about Samaritans, then you know that Jews hated Samaritans, but not Jesus. He was not a respecter of persons. He showed no partiality based on color or ethnicity or heritage. Jesus loved all who came to him through repentance and faith. And Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah first, if you remember, to a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, verses 25 through 26. Jesus saved a whole town in Samaria in John 4, 39 through 42. Jesus taught about the Good Samaritan parable, which is one of the most famous, well-known parables of all time. And it was all about how it was the Samaritan is the one who showed love for his neighbor. The truth is, we are all outcasts. But because of the blood of Christ, we can all be made new. And this life should lead us to a grateful life, to a thankful life, to a life that appreciates Christ and a life that appreciates others. And this Samaritan may have been half-Jewish and half-Gentile, and he was despised by your rigid Jews, but this guy came to saving faith, and that ought to be a representation in a sense of all of us, because we're all outcasts. We all have a disease called sin, and we are all mixed with this world. And yet, through repentance and faith, we can be made brand new. And that's what I'm getting at when we're, we've looked at the need is apparent, the healer was competent, the change is evident. Number four, the lesson is magnificent. Here's the interaction we see in these last three verses Jesus asks this leper who's now been cleansed, he asked him three questions. Number one, were not 10 cleansed? Verse 17, then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Cleanse, that's the question. This question seems to be expecting a positive answer. Like, of course they were all cleansed. That's the way the question is asked. That's the answer it anticipates. Were the 10 lepers, where, where, where were they? Had not they all been cleansed? But only one had returned to give praise and to give worship and to give thanks to Jesus. And so this prompts Jesus's second question, where are the nine? Where are the nine? We can assume that the nine are heading to the priest to verify their healing. This question emphasizes that at this moment, the nine are in the wrong place. I mean, in a sense, they're doing what Jesus said, But remember, this guy went above and beyond what Jesus said and first came to give thanks. And when Jesus says, where are the nine? It infers that Jesus is under the perception that they might be in the wrong place. I mean, again, don't get me wrong. They did need to go to the priest for the civil law, uh, but they also needed to give thanks to Jesus. Okay, You can still keep the law and you can still keep other um, intangibles of the law at the same time. So you don't have to say, well, i got to go do this, so I can't do this. No, you go do this, but you can still do this. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You can still come back and give thanks. Jesus is actually probably showing that he's more concerned about their worship from their heart than just going through the ritual of the Old Testament cleansing. It would have been better for the nine to have first given thanks and then to have gone to the priest. So should they have gone to the priest? Absolutely. But we're just saying, wouldn't it have been better if they would have first given thanks and then gone? And the scripture's full of things like this, whereas on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasizes the importance of doing the right thing first, right? You remember from Matthew 5, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. And you know what a lot of people do? Well, I just got to come offer my gift. I got to come offer my gift. Well, yeah, you you need to offer your gift, but you know what you need to do first? You need to go make it right, and Jesus is kind of giving the same teaching here. Hey, yes, you need to go to the priest. I'm the one who told you to go to the priest, but first, it would have been appropriate for you to have come given thanks. That's what Jesus is saying here, that there was, that, that, that you would first come and thank God would always be the right thing to do, and this leads us to the third question that Jesus asked was not Was no one found in return to give praise to God except this foreigner? Was no one found, again, verse 18, to give thanks and praise to God except this foreigner? Let me just say, on this last question, Jesus is using the word foreigner. It was not a word of scorn or contempt. It was not a declaration to bring any attention of this man as being somehow uh, a horrible person. Instead, He may even be showing that it was this person who had the superiority of faith compared to the Jewish men who lacked the faith, and it's almost like, isn't this interesting? And This guy's a foreigner. We may not have expected it from him, but we would have expected it from these Jews. Notice also the humility of Jesus' third question. I I love in verse 18 again, he says, was no one found to return and give praise to God? Yes, the ungratefulness of the nine pained Jesus, but he was more concerned about the fact that no one else came back to do what? To give praise to God. And Jesus doesn't even add, and to thank me. He doesn't say that. He's just like, well, why didn't they come back and praise God? He is deeply concerned with the fact that his father in heaven did not receive the praise due his name. And Jesus says nothing about himself. And I believe that Jesus is also especially concerned because this means that the nine may not have been made truly new on the inside. If the nine are not willing to praise God from their heart, then they might go through the ritual and the cleansing, but we don't know what happened really on the inside. Jesus also begins to couple the idea of ungratefulness with unbelief. In fact, Look back, if you will, at Luke 6.35, just real quick. Look back at Luke 6.35. Jesus says, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the, what does it say? To the ungrateful and the evil. Now in this phrase, Jesus is saying, look, we, we ought to love our enemies and we wanna you know, do what God's called us to do But if we do what God's called us to do, that's when Jesus shows kindness to the ungrateful and the evil. And it's like Jesus is coupling ungratefulness and evil together in the same breath. To be ungrateful is to be evil. Not only do we see it there in Luke 6.35, turn with me to Romans 1.21. Again, we're saying here that there's a building in the scripture that the unthankful and the evil are placed together in gratitude, I believe we could say, is a sin. Ingratitude is a sin with severe consequences. And you know this passage from Romans 1, 18 to 32, but I just want you to look at verse 21. The whole account gives a detailed description of the downfall of a person and a society listed alongside of idolatry and homosexuality and every kind of rebellion and unthankfulness is listed there in verse 21. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him, as God, or what's it say? To give Him thanks. They didn't honor God, and they did not give him thanks, because they became futile and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This verse tells us that God takes gratefulness and ungratefulness seriously. As long as a person or a culture remains thankful to God, then they retain a sensitivity to his presence. True thankfulness toward God requires a belief in God at the very least. And uh, it requires us to lean into acknowledging that he's the giver of life in all things. And when we don't do that, then we go down our own path and our own path leads to idolatry, rebellion, homosexuality. And that's all out of a heart that's unthankful. Ingratitude is a sin. When we refuse to be thankful, or to express gratitude, we grow hard hearted and proud, and we take for granted all that God has given us, and we become our own gods. And so, after Jesus asks these three rhetorical questions in verses 17 and 18, we then see verse 19, your next part of the outline. Jesus asserts two instructions. Number one, rise and go your way. Rise and go your way. He said to them, Rise. And go your way. First part of verse 19. So the Samaritan had given thanks. It is now time for him to go his way. He should still go to the priest. And then uh, like the Gerizim demoniac and the woman at the well in Samaria, he's got a story to tell. This man, no doubt, would be a mighty witness for the cause of Christ. And not only would he talk about his outer healing from leprosy, but he also had received inner healing from his sin. And so when he says, go and rise and go your way, go to the priest and then continue your mission to share with everybody far and wide what God has done for you. And then the last part of verse 19, number two, the second instruction Jesus gives this healed man is your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. He says, go and rise, or excuse me, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is not the word cleansed from verse 14. He doesn't say, go for your faith has cleansed you. This is not the word healed from verse 15. He doesn't say go because you're now healed. It's the word sozo, which is commonly used in the New Testament to refer to someone who has been saved from their sin. That's what the word is. The word sozo. It indicates salvation. It's the same word that's used of the sinful woman who repented and wet. Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and, and offered kisses to his feet and anointed his feet with oil from the alabaster flask in Luke 7.50. The word sozo says about that woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Sozo. In the very next chapter, Luke 8:48, we see the same word used when Jesus said to the woman that he had healed from the discharge of blood, Luke 8:48, he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. The word sozo, it means it saved you. Go in peace. In Luke 18, 42, after Jesus healed the blind beggar, he said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Again, the word sozo. And again, these passages are all inferring that not only had Jesus cleansed their outside, but he healed their hearts. To be sozo, to be made well, to be made cleansed, to to, to be saved, refers to saving faith granted to the individual who has maybe received a physical healing, but is also receiving a spiritual healing. And this man alone out of the 10 who were miraculously healed from leprosy also received, this man also received a second miracle of salvation from his sin. His trust and gratitude and humility and commitment and love and praise and worship all characterize his faith in Jesus as a faith that really saved him. And this incident is not merely the story of 10 individuals, the one who was redeemed and the nine who were not grateful. It's not what the story is about. The one who was redeemed or, or, or healed and the nine who were not grateful. The nine, I think, going a little further, could represent unbelieving Israel who had only a superficial interest in Jesus and the people wanted what they could get from him, like healing and food and deliverance from demon, demons and rescue from the oppression of the Roman rule, but refused, at least as a nation, to acknowledge Jesus as God and to worship him. On the other hand, the repentant man pictures the believing remnant among the Jews of any non-Jewish repentant sinner who will come to Christ in true faith and gratitude. And both groups enjoyed the benefit of Jesus's power and basked in the wonder of his teachings and his miracles, but the majority were content with superficial temporal benefits which they could obtain from Jesus. And only a few, and in this case, only one humbled themselves, glorified Jesus as God, worshiped him as the Lord of all and desired to radically be transformed through thanksgiving for the change that has happened in his own heart. Every child of God should cultivate this kind of gratitude and appreciation of the grace that has been freely bestowed on us. And it's not only opening our hearts to further blessings, but it's us glorifying and pleasing the Father and thanking the Son. Too often we are content to enjoy the gift, but we forget the giver. We are quick to to pray and to make our petitions, but we are slow to express our appreciation and our gratitude. In the words of J.C. Ryle, quote, Above all, let us pray for a deeper sense of our own sinfulness, guilt, and undeserving condition. This, after all, is the true secret to a thankful spirit. It is the person who daily feels his debt to grace and daily remembers that in reality, we deserve nothing but hell. This is the person who will be daily blessing and praising God. Thankfulness is a flower which will never bloom well, excepting upon a root of deep humility. Well, that be true of us, I pray, this week? And if you're here and you struggle with gratitude, then it could be that you're not saved. It's the point of the message. It may be that you have all kinds of issues and needs and reasons to be thankful, but the most deep reason of all would be maybe you're too prideful and you're not broken in spirit. And God would be saying to you this morning through his word and through this passage, come back to me. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a reminder in that passage that our trust is not in the law of God or in our own obedience or being a good guy. But our salvation is contingent uh, only on the person and work of Jesus. And so I'm calling you this morning to come to Christ, to come out of a lifestyle of sin and shame, to come out of a lifestyle of ingratitude and self Propelling yourself to whatever it is you're striving for. And come to Christ. After we sing our last song, we'll have a couple of people right here. We'd love to talk with you about where you're at. And this morning as we head out of here, a couple of take-home applications. Do you express gratitude to God and others as much as you should? Answer. What's your answer? Do you express gratitude to God and others as much as you should? No. What are you going to do about it? All right? Well, you got this week to start, right? This is an easy week for us to start. Like, yeah, you know what? I want to be a thankful person. Not just today, but every day for the rest of my life. Number two, are you mindful that all you deserve is God's judgment in hell? The biggest reason why we don't give thanks much is we're too prideful. If we could just start right there, I deserve God's judgment in hell. How can that be a turning point and, and grip me uh, you know, to turn into now a, a more, uh, have more gratitude? And then number three, what are five things that you're thankful for today how will you demonstrate that gratitude? I know that you're thankful and you'll be sharing these at Thanksgiving, but I don't want us to just talk about it. I'd like for us to demonstrate it. And that's what this guy did. He didn't just talk about it. He demonstrated through worship, through coming back. And when Jesus says, go your way, he's gonna be a testimony of that grace for the rest of his life. We wanna be thankful to him, to Jesus, who gave us everything that we might live and experience His best in us as we glorify him in our lives. Let's close our time in prayer. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to to just see so many wonderful truths throughout this text of Luke 17. God, we know it's a magnificent miracle that was done when this leper with no hope, all 10 of them were healed, but only this one came back, a foreigner, a Samaritan. We should have all known better, but this one came back. What an example of a heart that had been radically transformed, that he wanted to utter loud praise, come and fall at the feet of Jesus, and to give him thanks. And I pray that that would be a beautiful picture of what we ought to be doing, not only for the many blessings you bestowed upon us, so many which are physical, and we're super thankful for family, houses, jobs, food, and even our health. And yet we're reminded that our health could go away in a minute, just like with this disease of leprosy. And we're reminded throughout the life that we live, that our finances could be gone, our freedoms could be gone, our family could be gone, and yet we can still run back to you at any moment on any day and give you thanks. God, forgive us for our own sin of ingratitude. Forgive us for griping and complaining so easily. Forgive us for making more petitions than we offer thanksgivings in our prayers, and I pray that you would truly help us think through this passage and Walk through it together with other believers in our family, maybe even over this break in a way that would help glorify the beauty and the majesty and the mercy of our great God demonstrated through the Lord Jesus Christ by offering up his life as a ransom for many. Help us to turn in this moment throughout this week from our sin and help us to turn rather to our Savior and to give him thanks, to worship him and to walk hand in hand with the Lord Jesus throughout every moment and every day of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.